Jumping right in, uh, in 1961 in Argentina, um, kind of late night uh, on a country road, a van drives by and picks up a guy in his 60s, um, snatches him right off the road, throws him in the back of the van. Uh, the guys in the van were actually the Israeli version of the CIA, which is called the Mossad. And the Mossad had been tracking a man by the name of Adolf Eichmann, who was largely responsible for a lot of the prosecution of the, the genocide, the final solution under the Nazi regime in the 40s, and had made his way, um, if you get into conspiracy theories, with the help of someone in the Vatican, um, into a, a way to go to a German community in Argentina that was bringing a lot of Nazi, former Nazi officers, and, and kind of helping them start new lives in Argentina in hiding. And once the Israeli state was kind of functioning, uh, Israel as a nation state uh, really wasn't birthed until the late 40s with the UN resolution and then the war for independence. And so by 61, a still very young country trying to unite a whole lot of different Jewish people from different parts of the world into a whole and to reconcile kind of uh, this massive genocide in their history and, and how that formed, had gone looking for some of these Nazi war criminals. Eichmann was picked up on the road um, without Argentina knowing it, so the legality of it was debated. Uh, he was whisked off, um, kind of in secret, off to Israel, and Israel put him on trial uh, for war crimes, crimes against humanity, uh, in Jerusalem. A Jewish-German thinker by the name of Hannah Arendt, uh, was, who really was one of the leading philosophers of the last hundred years, Studied under Martin Heidegger in Germany, was, was really well regarded. She ended up in a detention camp in France and then herself had to make it to the United States um, as part of kind of the whole war scenario. Was the first woman professor at, um, at Princeton in philosophy. And she read the article, living, in, uh, living on the East Coast there, and immediately wrote The New Yorker and offered herself up and said, I want to go to Jerusalem and I want to cover the Eichmann trials. And she had written a book that's kind of a classic of 20th century literature, uh, The Origins of Totalitarianism. And so she was the expert on kind of totalitarian thinking. And by the way, there's a lot of that these days. And what that does to humans and what that does to societies. But she hadn't lived through the genocide. She had she'd made her way over to the States and she wanted to go cover this and and basically see Eichmann face to face, hear the testimonies, and be able to go deeper into her understanding of what was going on. New Yorker thought this was a fascinating opportunity for them to take such a, a high profile woman and to use her as a reporter, and so they sent her to Jerusalem and she covered uh, the Eichmann trials. When she got back and eventually published her articles in the New Yorker, it caused a massive scandal. Um, and for several different reasons, but the biggest one was as a philosopher, as a political thinker, she, she really tried to get beneath the surface of what was going on, and a lot of people felt like she didn't bring her Jewishness into it and, and hold Eichmann as guilty for the crimes as, as someone should have, subjectively, um, to really dignify all of the martyrs who had died in the genocide, the Holocaust, but that she was... She's kind of getting objective and beneath it and missing that. She even implicated 
uh, leaders of Jewish communities because in a strange twist of history, the fact that Jewish communities had leaders and hierarchies and chains of command and, and some sense of organization meant that people that were under duress facilitated the removal from ghettos uh, onto trains and to extermination camps quicker than a disorganized mob would have been able to organize themselves. Um, and so whatever the different leaders of different communities, whether out of good motive, not even knowing what was going on, or even potentially a bad motive, just the fact that those communities were organized meant that you had a, um, a higher rate of, of kind of movement of people than you would have if it was just a massive chaotic group of people in different ghettos. And so Hannah Arendt wrote about this and people were just horrified, um, especially in Jewish communities, that she would bring Jewish leaders or Jewish people into any kind of a complicity with what happened. And so it was a very, it was a very high charged, fascinating time. Um, she was threatened at her college um, and, and it kind of went, went all sorts of different places. Uh, out of that eventually came a book that she wrote and the title of the book was, was the phrase that she developed to talk about um, what she referred to as the Eichmann phenomenon. And the, the terminology she came up with for the Eichmann phenomenon was the banality of evil. The banality of evil. So you can actually get the book that um, wasn't allowed to be translated into Hebrew until 1999, um, which she had quite a few words to say about it. Uh, uh, the irony of history of, of and I won't go into that, but um, it's just called Eichmann in Jerusalem. It's the book version that came out uh, after, uh, after the articles did, and it's subtitled, A Report on the Banality of Evil. And what the Eichmann phenomenon she was talking about that the phrase banality of evil captures is this, and it's a, it's a very subtle one, and it's, it's that she realized in the trials that Eichmann as a cog in the wheel, Eichmann as a guy who uh, was allowed to just develop this pattern of following orders, Eichmann as a guy who uh, would just go to work um, in the morning after breakfast and come home before dinner, and try to be as effective and efficient within his gift set as he could, like anyone going to kind of any job, beginning to reduce it down to those kinds of tasks, was so far different in his boringness than what, what she went over there thinking in terms of the, the degree of evil of the acts that resulted from his actions, okay? So the evil of the Holocaust, and you're going to, connect that to a human being, um, she found that everyone was talking about him as if, as if when she showed up, he was going to have horns, and he was going to be a devil, and he was going to be a maniacal being, and would probably, like Hitler, in the middle of, of various testimonies, go off on the Jews with, with hatred and anti-Semitism, that he would look like what you would expect to go with evil. Does that make sense? And, and, and the phenomena was that it was the exact opposite, that this, this human being was in, in so many ways to her very unremarkable, very boring, very um, normal, very much like you and I. And that there was no horns, there was no devil, there was no whatever. And 
And she began to extrapolate from that and basically say that sometimes the greatest evil um, happens on, on the back end of chains of events where lots of different people play small little parts. And, and those parts, the reason we play them is because we can, in our minds, make them seem small, disconnected from the evil that they are connected with, and, and that those normal, boring people in the sum total um, end up as, as, as part of this, this great evil that comes about. Um, so you have heinous evil on one side and a boring individual on the other. And she thought he should be hung, but she, she came at it from totally different reasons than the trial uh, came at it from. She thought the trial was a bit of a sham in the sense that you can't try a man, um, you, you can't put history on trial. You can only put a man on trial or a woman. And she felt like that the trial was putting, putting all of the Nazi system or all of history on trial and then trying to connect it to the man rather than starting with the man and, and connecting it. But that distinction is a fascinating one to me. Um, the banality of evil that, that when we really look at human events, um, things end up a lot more messy or normal than what, what we think they are when we sensationalize them or just take a simple read. I, uh, I think the same is true with tragedy. And so I was going to talk this week on a metaphor of God as a vine dresser, uh, us as a vine, next week on the metaphor as God as a shepherd and us as sheep. And coming into this week uh, and then hearing the news, Steve Mickle at Westside, we always joke about if his, his four sons and my four daughters had been a little closer in age, we would have made a great pastoral um, dynasty. Um, and so for him to lose his 21-year-old son just randomly in Bend, Oregon on a, a morning because you go into a turn too fast, um, that we would just turn on the news one day and, and that we would have the largest, you know, the largest mass shooting um, in U.S. history just because the night before it happened. Uh, why that night? You know, tragedy happens on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It happens on Mother's Day. It happens on Father's Day. Tragedy happens in the most boring of moments, the most mundane of days, the sleepiest of summer afternoons, and it just comes at you when you don't know it's coming, when you don't expect it. Um, it comes at you with people being shot in the back in Fulaja, all the way half a world away, completely disconnected from our experience, our day-to-day -day lives, where we're going with our decision-making. It's it's kind of all around us. And I think sometimes we can stay uh, arm's length away from tragedy enough that we can lull ourselves into a false sense of security, a false sense of comfort, a false sense of normalcy, that in the mundane, in the normal, that there's some sort of guardrails that pr protect us from tragedy. Tragedy might come, but it's gonna come after a doctor sits down and explains things with us. Tragedy might come, but it's gonna come when I'm in my 60s, not when I'm in my 40s. Tragedy might come, but we, we kind of get this, this false sense that the mundane is gonna protect us like a buffer from real tragedy getting to us unless it goes through some kind of proper channel or, or system that would allow it to, to, to make sense. And 
And that's actually not the way it, it really happens. Um, those of us that are parents, uh, or all of us, I think even with what happened at a Disneyland resort park, begin to think, what would that look like if I took my family on vacation and that happened? How would I ever stitch my life back together? Um, how many years would it take? What, what kind of miracle would allow me to restart some kind of normal living knowing that that, that happened in front of me? Um, we have two people sitting in here that were at Orlando, Disneyland, um, this week. And at the same time it happened, walking by that same pond. And, and so lots of us thinking through, what, is that, what does that look like? What does that mean? And how does that happen? And what does it say about life? And I, I think it presses in on us a question of faith that is worth wrestling with. And so I, I scrapped the vine thing because, um, frankly, it just... I was going to bring a bottle of Grand Cru out here and explain the soil in Burgundy and it was going to be really fun and draw pictures and it just felt really, really gimmicky on, on a week where I think there's different questions that we're wrestling with. And so um, it's always hard to scrap a sermon and, and to start over and do what I would call um, a new sermon, just like in the Bible it talks about a new song. And a new song is hard. You don't have it memorized. Um, you, you don't have it all worked out. You don't have all the details. Um, just like a new sermon, you don't have it worked out. You, you haven't got it all kind of blocked out and prepped with the slides like you would the other thing. But somehow, I think sometimes, we have to wrestle a little bit deeper with, with what are the things about faith that are very unique to the current moment, the messiness of, of life right here and right now, where somehow maybe we can come out with a little bit of a different or deeper understanding of the nature of our faith in God. And so I'm gonna play with that a little bit um, in the, the short time we have, and then we're gonna take communion. Um, but we, we read Psalm 42, Kendra read Psalm 42, and it, it fits a pattern that I love and that you might hear me talk often about. But Psalm 42, um, it's a famous psalm, and so I'll just read parts of it again, but it's, it begins as the kind of 1970s Maranatha song, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? So there's a hunger and a desire there. My tears have been my food day and night while people say to me all day long, where is your God? And these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So this is somebody not emotionally celebrating, not feeling the goodness of, of the world or the beauty of the world, but somehow in faith connected to the glory of God and the beauty of God and knowing that apart from God, there's really nowhere to turn or to look. And so this person, as they lament and as they kind of beseech God, is, is reminding their soul to bend back toward faith. That in, all, in, in the dark emotions, in the difficult times, to bend back towards faith because this is the only place, put your hope in God, um, for yet will I praise him. It's the only place I can have hope because someday I will be able to praise and see the goodness of God because God is my savior. 
So again, my soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. Um, this is a metaphor that's the idea that going down to the grave is like drowning. And so being enveloped. By the, uh, by the day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by my enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? In other words, I'm having to wait longer than I would want to wait. I'm having to wait longer than is comfortable to wait. I'm having to wait so long that other people that are looking at my life and that, that, that know that I'm waiting for vindication are beginning to tease me and say, um, maybe it's not that your God hasn't shown up yet. Maybe you just have a misplaced faith. Maybe your God doesn't exist. Maybe your Christianity doesn't work. Maybe your answers to the deeper questions of life are just cliche. Because where is this deliverance, where is this salvation that you talk about as a Christian or as a believer or as someone that puts their faith in God? And it's uncomfortable. And that's what we see here in the psalm. And, and I've talked about it a lot. The psalms are really interesting because they don't speak to us. They speak for us. The, the words in psalms, unlike Paul's words, when we get to his letters in the New Testament, they don't speak at us or to us. They speak on behalf of us. These are the words that if we're being honest with ourselves in some of our prayers and some of our dark moments that capture our feelings and what we would really want to say, but we don't always want to say things because sometimes saying those things means we have to admit them to ourselves. And I think sometimes when we don't understand the complexity of faith, we don't want to admit any kind of doubt because, again, there's that weird teeter-totter. If I admit doubt, then somehow what does that mean about the degree of my faith? And if my faith isn't as strong as I thought it was last year or two years ago when I was leading a small group or three years ago when I got married or four years ago when I, whatever it was, if my faith isn't as strong as it was then, what does that mean for the trajectory of my faith? What am I going to be admitting to myself if I allow doubt or, or the wrestling of the hiddenness of God kind of into my, my own internal conversation? And the beauty about the Psalms is the Psalms are much more mature than we are. I think God put them in Scripture for that reason. It normalizes what I would call messy, earthy, very real spiritual conversation. Um, and then it ends this way, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This psalm fits a pattern that I like to talk a lot about. Life is bad. God, where are you? Um, I need you. Um, yet um, I will put my trust in the Lord. And, and it, it kind of does a full circle. Does that make sense? It's a, it's a beautiful picture of the messiness of life, the mystery of God, and then, and then how faith has to work its way into that. Um, here's one that's very different. Turn to this one, if you will. Um, if you don't like being depressed, then just tune out for the next five minutes. But here's one that's very different. And I don't play with this formula very often. This is Psalm 88. Nobody knows uh, who the sons of Korah are. Nobody knows who Haman the Ezraite is. It's a very obscure psalm. And Psalm 88 reads this way. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. 
I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I'm accounted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I'm set apart from the dead. Um, picture a leper colony here in terms of the, the Hebrew language beneath it. Like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no, more, uh, no, remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies, lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all of your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? In other words, why would you let me die? How can you be praised from the grave? Why would you not come and rescue me? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? For my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I've borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. The same language again of the sea, the ocean dragging you down. By the way, this psalm uses more uh, synonyms for hell, Sheol, the pit, uh, than any other psalm. Some more Hebrew synonyms of this idea of going down to the grave, uh, down to the depths. Uh, all day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. The end. Um, when I talk about Psalms, I like, to, I like to use Psalm 42 and other Psalms like that. It, it, it's a nice circle. It ties up kind of at the end. It points back to God. It points back to faith. Um, I don't know how Psalm 88 gets in Scripture. I mean, no one even knows who it is, right? Like, so who slipped it in? You know, like the pile of Psalms one day. You know, who, who took a letter and was like, I was depressed last night. Let me, let me slip this into the songbook. And then, and then here we are with Psalm 88. Like, I, you know, it's, it's interesting but there it is. It's in, it's in our inspired prayer book, in our song book. I mean, you'd have to get a, a really depressed hipster from Portland on a very cold February day <laughs> to sing this and do it justice. You know what I'm talking about? Like, how do you make this a song, right? Like, what kind of theatrics, what kind of chords? I mean, how do you make that a song? Yet, there it is. And... I think what, what it does for me is it puts us back into a discussion on the nature of faith. And I think as I reflect on 20 years of really thinking about faith, I really came to the Lord at age 22. That's when my relationship with Jesus began. That's when day and night thinking about this stuff took over me. Right? I went on a missions trip in high school with Young Life. I don't know if I've ever told you guys this. It was the first time I ever stole anything. I was in Kenya. I was at a tourist market. And, uh, and me and another teenager went around stealing. That's how much of a Christian I was in high school. Uh, I had a relationship with Jesus at age 22. By the way, that's, <laughs> there's a lot I could say about that. Um, I praise God for Jarrell. 
um, this is what I do, that, that we wouldn't just chaperone kids around but not deal with their hearts or issues of faith because you end up with guys like me in Kenya um, sending out support letters so that I can go um, steal things from, you know what I'm saying? Some of you are looking at me funny like I just revealed something I shouldn't have revealed. Um, I'm 43 now. I've been thinking about faith pretty deeply for 20 years. The dominant thought, um, if you want to take 20 years of thinking about faith, is that we really miscategorize what faith is. We mislabel it. Like it's, it's a spice and somehow we move it over into the vitamin section in our kitchen. Like we, we put an entity in the complete wrong place, wrong category. Um, and so when we go to grab for it or if we need it, we, we don't see it there. And, and what we do is this, we make it an either or static thing. Faith is a static thing. It's what we've made it. Means you either have it or you don't. How much faith do you have? Well, I have this much or this much. And that that's gonna remain constant. That shouldn't change. Why? Because it's a static reality. Um, what is it a reality connected to? It's a reality connected to the fact that uh, whether or not I believe there's a God and whether or not I believe he will save me. So faith becomes about uh, heaven and hell and it becomes about when I die and it becomes about um, things like trumpets and Peter with keys at the gates of heaven. So what is faith? Faith, oh, I have faith. I believe God exists. Uh, what is faith? Oh, yeah, I have faith. I've, I've done certain things that allow me to feel very good about the fact that I think I will be saved when I die. Um, which makes salvation have to fit underneath that patterning of faith. So now salvation only becomes a relevant conversation when we're talking about whether people are, are dead or not. Does that make sense? Because if faith is governing whether I'm saved when I die, then salvation is really a question about where do I go reside, um, good place, bad place, hot place, mild place, like when I die. So now salvation becomes about trumpets too. Um, and so then we get this life where it's very mundane and it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and it's Mother's Days and Father's Days and it's hot days and it's cold days and it's rainy days and sunny days and it's, it's just the normalcy of life. And if I bring up the question of salvation, well, that doesn't really fit with Monday or Friday or Mother's Day. That's trumpets and, and whether you've died and, and the question of where you're gonna reside eternally. And I'm saying no. The Psalms talk about whether God will save me from the afflictions about looking to hope for deliverance from God that, that somehow out of the mundane or the messy or the tragic that God would work in the, the earthiness, the, the messiness of life to somehow over time deliver me even if it takes longer than I think it should and that somehow my faith would be vindicated because God would demonstrate himself faithful. And yes, it might take till the other side of the grave, like with Lazarus and the rich man, the parable that Jesus talks, and that there's some real reckoning where Lazarus, the poor, poor guy, is as a, a redeemer, Jehovah Jireh, that is involved in the particularities of life, the messiness of life. 
that, that somehow faith is about a belief in whether or not God actually sees me, knows me, or will prove himself faithful to the promises that he's made to his children, to the covenants. Now, we can claim a lot of promises that are beyond what God has said, right? Um, one of the famous ones they always talk about is raise your children in the way they should go and they won't depart from it. That's not a promise. It's a proverb. And all things being equal, we know that, that good parenting is better than bad parenting, right? Is anyone going to say that bad parenting is, is better apt to get you good results or wise children than good parenting? Nobody's going to say that. Wisdom tells us that all things being equal, that we train people, we disciple them, we educate them, that, that somehow they can grow up. And so we try to parent well, and that somehow in that, chances are that's going to be better than bad parenting. It's not a promise that your, your children are going to turn out the way that you thought they would or the way that you think they should, and, or that you're going to be pain-free from the disappointment that can happen sometimes. And to that, we, we say even God had two biological children, if you want to put it that way. They didn't turn out so good either, right? So there's no guarantees. So sometimes we take, and there's, lots of, there's lots of the Jeremiah verse. I know the plans I have for you to prosper you and to, to this and to, to, to heal the land. It was a promise to the nation of Israel, and it has principles, principles that we can take from it, that faithful living is connected um, to the faithfulness of God. But, but claiming some of these verses as if they're direct promises, we can go beyond what God has promised to us. Does that make sense? But when we really sit into scripture, we, we look at it and we say, God has promised his love. He's promised that when all is said and done, that he is just and he is loving, that he will not forget his people. He has promised um, certain things to us through Jesus Christ. There are promises in scripture and the idea is that when we lean on those, when we trust in those and that God is gonna demonstrate his faithfulness to, to our faith, that that's, that's what faith is about. That's what daily living is about. We, we see this phrase that the righteous or the just will walk by faith, which means it's not static. It goes into time. It's dynamic which means it, it goes up and it goes down and you have good seasons and you have bad seasons. You have good nights and bad nights and you have friends that can help encourage your faith. That's why all throughout Hebrews and in, in Paul's letters, it talks about encourage one another's faith daily because your faith can be nurtured. It can actually grow. We can come together on Sundays and actually walk out with more robust faith over time. That's why the discipline of church is a beautiful discipline because you never know which Sunday is the right Sunday to be here or what the totality of Sundays, 30 or 40 throughout a year, year after year, is gonna do to nurture or encourage your faith. But faith can be encouraged and grow. It's like a muscle. It's not static, it's dynamic. It goes through time. And because it goes through time, we have to have language to describe the experience of highs and lows. What is the language we have to, to describe the lows? It's language like doubt or fear or, or just struggle. I'm struggling with my faith. I'm struggling to make sense of the idea that God somehow sees what's going on in my life because I feel all alone 
and darkness is my only friend. I, I know that that's my kind of heart is pointing back to God somehow, but this particular day, I'm, I'm struggling to have the energy to really sit there. Like that's real language. That's the Psalms. It's the earthiness of it. That's where God is a, a savior or a redeemer or someone who's gonna deliver is supposed to actually meet or intersect with, with the realness of human experience in life. So when we take faith and we miscategorize it as just about after death or just about belief that God exists, this kind of static thing, we really push it out of day-to-day -day existence. Do you see, you see what I mean by that? Like we push it out of our day-to-day our -day life in conversation. And so then how do we live? And I think the, the sad reality is we begin to be trained to fill that vacuum in with um, other worldviews or habit patterns of how to live life. What does that look like? It, it looks like us being a herd creature, living in communities where we are shaped by peer pressure. If, if faith, day-to-day -day faithful living isn't what's dominating my thinking of how I'm supposed to fill my time, then secular thinking thinking that makes no reference to God or God's ultimate plans or to the day-to-day -day trust I need to, to have to believe that another way of living is really worth it. Secular thinking, which, which pushes God out and just says means ends. What's gonna work? How do I navigate the job? How do I manipulate friends? How do I get what I want? How do I deal with this problem that cropped up because I made a mistake? Now I gotta fix it. Who's gonna fix it? I'm gonna fix it. How do I fix it? It doesn't matter how I fix it as long as it's fixed. Well, what if that means breaking some kind of moral code? Well, that's okay because it's not a big moral code. You know, heck, everyone speeds. Like, you know, this is, our, this is the kind of thinking that fills the gap. This is the kind of thinking that slowly, we don't really talk about on the surface, but, but begins to pattern our lives. Or, you know, today was a depressing day. I didn't get to love people the way I wanted to love. I didn't feel loved the way I wanted to feel loved. So I turn on the TV because I can numb that existential loneliness tonight for an hour or two before I go to bed. Um, I, can, I can go this way. I can go that way. I can, I can somehow begin to fill my, my time with things that I can be really passionate about because somehow if I can be defined by that thing, that hobby, that, that whatever, I mean, fill in the blank, then, then somehow I'll have meaning. Somehow people will think that I matter, that I'm defined by something. They'll look up to me. I'll have something I can be proud of. And so I'll just keep investing more and more into this idol so that it can grow, so that I can grow with it, so that I have some sem semblance of, uh, of, of pride. Because if I don't define myself by being connected to God and loved by God, then I have to find something within myself to make me feel good about myself. And so naturally, very naturally, I will be carried away to begin to define myself or look to define myself by my ability to make money, my ability to work, my ability to hit a, a certain score, whatever sport it is, my ability to know statistics. I find myself doing that, um, to have the answer to whatever it is. There's something really interesting that Hannah Arendt said, and I'll try and wrap us up quickly here. Um, 
I want to read this to you. And I don't think deep thinking is our problem. I studied philosophy. Philosophy isn't about philosophy. Philosophy is about wisdom. I don't think deep thinking is the problem where we get confused or lost. I think sometimes too simplistic thinking is where we get lost. When we don't make distinctions that help us understand what is really going on in our hearts. And so what, what Hannah Arendt was doing was making distinctions to help us understand some of the complexity of reality so that we can begin to go, you know what? We do that. By the way, her, her discussions on totalitarian thinking, we have a lot of that going on. Here's, here's the root of where it goes wrong. I don't care how you vote. I do not want to be the voting police. Um, here's the dangerous thinking. Dangerous thinking is when you so objectify the other extreme. You so objectify Bernie Sanders or so objectify Donald Trump or Democrats, Republicans, or whatever it is, that you will buy a lot of garbage on your own side that you never would have done otherwise if you didn't have somebody worse to set it against. Does that make sense? I don't care how you vote, but don't buy garbage into your, don't, don't be willing to accept garbage in. Say that you're just as ashamed about this garbage as you are against that garbage. Does that make sense? Totalitarian thinking, Nazi thinking, was able to do what it, what it did because it objectified other extremes that allowed for it to, to take and, and do whatever else because somehow it paled in comparison to the extremes it set. Does that make sense? Anyways, if not, that's fine. I just want to read this. Listen to Hannah Rand. This is halfway through the book. Um, just as the law in civilized countries assumes that the voice of conscience tells everybody, thou shalt not kill. Just as the law in civilized countries assumes that the voice of conscience, the voice God puts into us, tells everybody, thou shalt not kill, even though man's natural desires and inclinations may at times be murderous, so the law of Hitler's land demanded that the voice of conscience tell everybody, Thou shalt kill. Although the organizers of the massacres knew fully well that murder is against the normal desires and inclinations of most people. Evil in the Third Reich had lost the quality by which most people recognize it. The quality of temptation. Many Germans and many Nazis, probably an overwhelming majority of them, must have been tempted not to murder, not to rob, not to let their neighbors go off to their doom and not to become accomplices in all these crimes by benefiting from them. But God knows they had learned how to resist temptation. That the moral paradigm had been so flipped that the temptation people were resisting was the temptation towards good. And I was gonna go there, we're not gonna have time, but Second Chronicles chapter 30, we see this fascinating thing where Hezekiah, the good king, um, resets up the celebration of Passover. He cleanses the temple. He puts the Levites back into their roles. And he basically says, all of this evil where we have turned away from God and looked to live in different ways, this faithlessness, which became the norm, faithlessness becoming the norm, that somehow there had to be a good king to remind everybody, we have to flip the paradigm back and give into the temptation like Psalm 42, to trust once again. 
that somehow deep within us, that's where true north, north points. And so we've been training ourselves to ignore God, to resist the temptation to do good, and to let evil or faithlessness be the dominant way of patterning our lives. And that has to be re-flipped back over. We have to somehow learn how to give back into the temptation of faith. Does that make sense? And that some people in the community have to lead the way and to normalize that once again for, for herd creatures like myself that need peer pressure so that I can begin to benefit as you normalize faith again, even in the mundaneness of life or in the tragedy of life, and that, that our thinking begins to be one of God-based thinking, fearing of God, not secular, removing God thinking, filling the vacuum with other ways of living where we strive to try and just fix all of our own problems, be our own salvation and our own del deliverance. And so I thought it was fascinating when Pete suggested we did do communion this morning and I thought, this is God come down through Jesus Christ into the messiness of life and, and Jesus is not gonna throw over the political system of the Roman Empire the next day. Um, rather, he's gonna be killed on a cross in a very bloody way like the Passover lamb that led the Israelites out of Egypt and he's gonna do it as pilgrims walk by and shuffle by as soldiers cast lots for his clothes, in the mundaneness of that day, this ultimate tragedy happens. Yet it speaks to the earthiness of our salvation. That that blood being shed, that, that body being broken, was a very, very tangible and real part of nourishing our faith, our day-to-day -day faith, that we would do this on a regular basis and remind ourselves that salvation isn't for just trumpets. Salvation's for the emotional experience you're in now, for the doubts and the fear and the hiddenness of God you're dealing with now, that communion is for now. Communion is for cities like Bend or cities like Falaja. It's, it's for the now because God meets us in the messiness and in the particularities of life. And that's what Jesus inaugurates by this means of grace that as a community we would come and be encouraged and be strengthened. So we're gonna take communion. Ben, Katie are gonna lead us in singing. I would encourage you to sing with your real emotions. That we would sing the words of Psalms, that we would sing true words, that we would articulate the, the, the strangeness of the spiritual experience we go through. But the biggest thing is that when we come down we realize that God, who is often very distant, came very close to us in the person of Jesus Christ and wanted to demonstrate his love to us, that he sent his son to die on the cross, that that blood and that, that body would be the nourishment to feed our souls and to lead us into eternal life with our heavenly father. So let me pray real quickly for us. And as you decide to take communion, if you decide to take communion, just come down in the rows. You can go out the sides. There's gluten-free on, on the edge. There's grape juice, there's wine. Um, but let this be a remembrance to the love of God demonstrated to us through the love of Christ. Father, strengthen our faith that we would turn to Christ, we would look for our identity in Christ, that we would have a God-sized vision for day-to-day -day living, that we would try to live by faith, that even the, the struggles and the difficulties and challenges would be the, the kinds of things we could take back to you. Confirm to us this morning, if you would, if we could ask for it, your love for us, that you know our pains, 
that we can feel your closeness. We pray that in Christ's name.